0: During World War II, outraged officials in Nazi Germany searched high and low for this voice, which broadcast on a shortwave radio frequency, news and information, gossip, scandal and more. The overall effect was anti-Hitler and anti-Nazi, and the accent, this was clearly a native German, in fact, probably someone from Berlin itself. The Nazis were sure that this internal traitor was operating from a mobile transmitter, always staying one step ahead of the Gestapo, Hitler's Feared secret police. Whoever this man was, he was undermining morale, damaging the Nazi war effort, and he must be found. The frantic Nazis were partially correct. The man was a native Berliner, but he wasn't a step ahead of the Gestapo. He was actually 700 miles away in a secret room in a nondescript building in England. It was part of a top-secret British effort, a brilliant campaign to deceive the enemy, a largely unheralded example of deliberately using information that is false to help achieve an objective. There's a word for this, disinformation. And without disinformation, the Second World War might have gone quite differently, and thus the world as we know it today might not exist. I'm Paul Brandis, and that's the name of this series. It's called simply Disinformation. The topic of disinformation is huge, ever evolving. ...touches upon every nook and cranny of our society. War and peace, the economy, politics, elections, culture, finance, religion, our belief system, everything. And today, anyone theoretically can do it. Anyone can manipulate audio or video, make things up, and post it online. How did we get to this point? Can we somehow control it? Who's doing it? How and why? This series, a co-production of Evergreen and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm, is devoted to exploring these complex and intertwined issues. At this point, I'd like to bring in Meredith Wilson. She's the CEO of Emergent Risk International. She previously spent several years with the Defense Intelligence Agency and in the private sector, primarily in the oil and gas industry. Meredith will be a part of this series, lending her insight across this and future episodes. Now, this information has been part of warfare since the beginning of time, but Meredith suggested that we begin with World War II as a starting point for this series because of its centrality to our world today. So before going further, let's establish a baseline here, Meredith. Give me, if you could, your definition of disinformation.
1: So when we talk about disinformation, we're generally talking about um, intentionally manipulated information. So whether that is uh, with the aim of changing a political view or changing a uh, you know a specific uh, point of view on how things may happen in the future or how things are happening today, uh, it's generally intentionally manipulated information with some sort of political or economic or um, social outcome uh, intended.
0: That's different from misinformation, which is simply something wrong, but perhaps no maliciousness behind it.
1: Right. And oftentimes disinformation can turn into misinformation because it gets parroted down the line. And that's how we end up with some of these narratives that we that we battle with today, where people pick up bits and pieces of that disinformation and it starts to form a narrative. Uh, but oftentimes that could be considered misinformation because those people truly do not know that they're being deceived when they pass that information on. Mm-hmm.
0: In the opening to this particular episode, we played some clips of some of these uh, phony radio broadcasts that were beamed into Germany. They originated from uh, England. And there's a real famous quote by Winston Churchill about this. Churchill, of course, the ferocious lion who faced down Hitler. He said, quote, in wartime, truth is so precious That she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. That's such an interesting quote. I want to read it uh, again for our listeners. He said, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. What did he mean by that?
1: It was very poetic. Um, But, you know, when we think about um, when we think about war itself, tactical movements, um, you know, moving people across borders, moving people behind enemy lines, um, the the need for secrecy is immense. And um, and so in this case, I think he was really focused on that, um, you know, protecting what the allies were doing, um, you know, at all costs. Uh, In the government, we used to have the loose lips sink ships signs all over the place. Um, You know, a similar idea there. But but the, you know, the real aim here um, in protecting what was happening, what was going to be happening, um, really comes into play in that quote.
0: Churchill saw the power of disinformation as a means of eroding the Nazi regime, of undermining it from within. But when it comes to disinformation and Churchill, there's a lot more to the story.
2: Anything mischievous appealed to him, and intelligence and counterintelligence could be an ocean of mischievousness.
0: Paul Reed is co-author of The Last Lion, Winston Spencer Churchill, Defender of the Realm, 1940 to 1965. It's one of the more illuminating books on Churchill and his wartime leadership, of which his use of disinformation played a huge role. It was just something that meshed exactly with what Reed said, Churchill's ocean of mischievousness which reed says he used to great effect not only on the nazis but also the british people even the united states which churchill was eager to draw into the war
2: and he knew given their status in 1940 uh, when the battle of britain was beginning these were fraught times i mean danger but he also saw for instance the uh invasion scare he perpetrated the invasion scare that the Germans were coming by barges and flatboats and by air. And he never for a moment believed that. He was looking for American aid. He was looking to confuse the Germans. And he relished anything along those lines the camouflage of uh, ships of the Royal Navy with the dazzle zebra stripe camouflage, adding a phony smokestack to a cruiser that made it look like a battleship. Anything large or small and systemic uh, in the sense of changing railroad timetables all the time and then not running according to the timetable. So if a German saboteur was going to blow up a train, they didn't know where it was coming from, where it was going or at what time. And on and on down the list, Churchill uh, had his finger in that pie.
0: The most famous examples of World War II disinformation involve D-Day, and I have to tell you a story about how the U.S. used disinformation in one key battle during the Pacific War as well. I'll get to those stories in a minute. But first, there's one story you may not be familiar with, and it's a doozy. It's the story of the cadaver who washed ashore in Spain with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. One of the more amazing examples of wartime disinformation ever. Here again, Paul Reed. He
2: let go in public his wish to come up into the soft underbelly of Germany, starting in the Aegean and up through Greece and what is now Slovenia and the Ljubljana Pass. And this was public knowledge and he played it to effect so much so that the American generals by 1942 or three were getting tired of hearing him talk about that. Uh, They wanted to go straight from Dover to Normandy uh, and quickly and he was hesitant, rightly so I think, to do that. Um, Meanwhile, the, the Germans are listening to Churchill on the floor of Parliament and writing columns for the newspapers, clearly implying that when the invasion came, it was going to be through the soft underbelly, as he described it to Stalin and anyone else who would listen, which by 1944 added greatly, I think, to the plausibility of Operation Mincemeat,
0: So that's the setup. Churchill's propaganda about invading Germany from the south. Chances are you've never heard of Operation Mincemeat. And for that, let's turn to another historian, Dr. Craig Simons. He's history professor emeritus at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis.
3: Allies wanted to suggest to the Axis powers that their next target in the Mediterranean in 1943 was going to be Sardinia or Corsica, rather than Sicily and Italy. And to demonstrate that, they took a cadaver, an unidentified cadaver, dressed him up in a British officer's uniform, handcuffed an attache case to his wrist, and dumped him in the water off the coast of Spain near where uh, an Allied airplane had crashed, allowed that body to wash ashore. Well, the Spanish, who were technically neutral but Axis sympathetic, recovered the body Uh, saw the briefcase, surreptitiously opened it, pulled out the phony papers that showed the Allies were interested in attacking Sardinia and Corsica, uh, copied them, put them back in the briefcase, sealed up the briefcase, and then delivered the cadaver to the British Embassy saying, oh, we found this fellow. But the copies were then sent on to Berlin and Hitler bought it. He was absolutely convinced that this was genuine. In fact, of course, it was part of a very elaborate disinformation campaign, so that German reinforcements were sent to Corsica and Sardinia, as well as to Sicily and Italy, but it forced them to spread out their defensive forces and may have contributed to Allied success in the Sicilian and Italian campaigns. But it, was, it it's one of those disinformation pieces. Here's this dead cadaver who contributes as much to the Allied cause as any number of
0: living men. So Hitler bought this disinformation hook, line, and sinker. This was a huge deal. He wound up moving about a fifth of the entire German army from the Eastern Front to Greece and Sardinia. Not only did the Nazis weaken themselves in the east, where they were up to their necks battling the Soviets, but it also allowed the Allies to invade their true Mediterranean target, Sicily, with a minimum of casualties.
2: Out at sea, broadside after broadside was fired at the coastal batteries.
0: This information, the cadaver with the phony papers in his briefcase, diverted the enemy's attention and resources, and thus saved lives. The six-week Sicilian campaign led to the invasion of Italy itself and the eventual downfall in the spring of 1944. Of Benito Mussolini, the Italian dictator and Hitler ally. Rome itself, the eternal city, would fall on June the fifth, nineteen forty-four. President Franklin D. Roosevelt went on the radio that night to proclaim one down and two to go, a reference to Germany and Japan. FDR would have an even more momentous announcement just hours later, on June the sixth.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United
0: States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. Roosevelt, of course, was referring to D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy, the assault on Hitler's so-called Fortress Europe. The invasion itself, the largest amphibious assault in military history, is well known, the subject of countless books and movies. Lesser known, however, is the extraordinary amount of deception, disinformation on the part of the Allies, Aimed at fooling the Germans as to when and where the invasion would take place. Earlier in this episode, I spoke of the phony radio broadcasts, the phony radio timetables, etc. Well, in the run up to D Day, the Allies went far beyond all that. Again, here's Churchill biographer Paul Reed. There
2: were battalions, regiments, divisions of rubber tanks, airfields with rubber planes that. If a german uh, reconnaissance pilot flew over at dusk and looked down it'd count hundreds of planes there was radio traffic of pilots requesting takeoff and trains bringing supplies and on the assumption that well the radio traffic alone would be picked up by the nazis the uh, overflight reconnaissance flights would pick up this information and then they'd move the tanks down the road to another base and there was movement. Leave was canceled. Well, there was no leave to cancel, but they canceled leave.
0: This epic disinformation campaign began long before the invasion, about a year ahead of time. The code name for the overall campaign was Operation Bodyguard, which was subdivided into parts. Perhaps the most important of these was Operation Fortitude.
4: Fortitude was a plan to deceive the the Germans, the Nazis, as to the time and location of the invasion of uh, France, of Normandy.
0: Ernest Tavares, a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel, is the author of Operation Fortitude, a terrific study on the massive and highly effective disinformation campaign ahead of D-Day.
4: There were two parts of that. There was a Fortitude North and Fortitude South. Fortitude North was uh, intended to uh, make the Nazis believe that an invasion would take place uh, in Scandinavia, specifically Norway, uh, which played into uh, Hitler's fears. He was very concerned that would happen. Uh, He uh, kept about a quarter of a million troops in uh, Norway uh, uh, throughout the war uh, in anticipation of an invasion of Norway. Fortitude South was a much larger effort. The Nazis, of course, thought that an invasion would take place in france as well so obviously the logical location uh, to recapture europe uh so the intent there was to deceive the nazis as to the actual location making them think that they would be a happy at the Pas de calais area instead of normandy
2: here are dummy paratroopers to deceive the enemy into believing a parachute landing has been made simpler silhouette models are being developed
0: That's from a declassified OSS film from 1943. The OSS, by the way, was the Office of Strategic Services, which became the Central Intelligence Agency after the war. The dummy paratroopers, about three feet tall, would be dropped behind enemy lines far from Normandy in an attempt to fool the Germans.
2: Field tests have shown that the actual proportions of these dummies cannot be perceived by the enemy because of the absence of background, which allows for no standard of comparison. They therefore appear to be man-sized.
0: That completes the deceptive equipment. Fake paratroopers, fake aircraft, fake radio transmission. It was arguably the greatest deception or act of disinformation in military history. I had one final question for Paul Reed. In your judgment without disinformation, Without these incredible deceptions that we foisted upon the Nazis, without all of this, how much longer do you think the war would have gone on?
2: Well, a lot of his top advisors, Churchill's advisors, uh, and I agree, thought it. they were thinking, practically speaking, 1950 might be a, an attainable date. I mean, they weren't being pessimistic. And then they reminded themselves, because a very few of them knew of what was going on with the Manhattan Project, including Churchill, and the need to, to stop the German heavy water project in Norway and their atomic research. But they knew, well, this, this is 1942, 3, 4. We, don't, we might not have until 1950.
0: It can be argued, therefore, that disinformation helped to shorten the war in Europe Perhaps by years, its significance and contribution to the fight against Hitler simply cannot be overestimated. Let's pause for this short break.
4: This series on disinformation is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International, a global risk advisory firm. Emergent Risk International – We build intelligent solutions that find opportunities in a world of risk.
5: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,
0: Now you've heard these incredible stories about disinformation in the European theater during the war, but no discussion of disinformation and World War II would be complete without one incredible story of how the U.S. fooled the Japanese ahead of the pivotal battle of the Pacific War.
2: Out at sea, broadside after broadside was fired at the coastal batteries.
0: The Battle of Midway.
2: Army, Navy, and Marine planes cooperating with the fleet surprise a Jap invasion force sent to capture strategic Midway Island. stepping stone to Hawaii and the North American continent.
0: That's a newsreel from June 1942. The late military historian John Keegan called Midway, quote, the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare, while naval historian Craig Simons calls it, quote, one of the most consequential naval engagements in world history, unquote. Disinformation played a huge role here. Again, here's Dr. Craig Simons, Professor Emeritus of History at the U.S. Naval Academy.
3: In June of 1942, the Japanese, to put it bluntly, were winning the Second World War in the Pacific. They had attacked... The American battle fleet at Pearl Harbor, famously on December 7th, 1941, and pretty much wrecked the battleship fleet, sinking four of them, damaging four others, knocking the American battleship fleet kind of out of the war for a significant period of time, but... That attack had also missed hitting the American aircraft carriers. That's because one of them was in Puget Sound in Washington under repair, a schedule, long scheduled repair. Two others were delivering reinforcement planes out to Wake Island and to Midway, so that when the Japanese attacked in December 1941, there were no carriers at Pearl Harbor. Well, the Japanese admiral who'd planned this attack. Yamamoto Isaroku, the uh, commander of the combined fleet, knew he wanted to get those carriers because as long as they were loose in the Pacific, he didn't have absolute control of the Western Pacific. So the plan he put together to get the American carriers was to attack some object that the Americans valued, in this case, the Atoll of Midway and its airfield, the very tail end of the long uh, Hawaiian Island archipelago.
0: American code breakers led by a man named Joseph Rochefort had broken just enough of the Japanese code to figure out what they were up to and that AF, the Japanese code for Midway, was the target. But how could the Americans be sure? Here's where the disinformation comes in, and it has to do with something as innocuous as water, the water supply on Midway.
3: It was a lieutenant named Jasper Holmes, who was an engineer by training, who said, well, I have an idea. Why don't we pretend that the water condensers on Midway, Midway had no source of fresh water, they had to take seawater and then desalinate it to have drinking water. Why don't we pretend that those desalinization machines have broken down into running short of water? We'll send a message by subterranean cable so that it can't be intercepted out to Midway to ask us in a radio message through the ether to tell us that their water condensers were broken. And then we'll wait. And we'll see. And sure enough, the Japanese intercepted that radio message and reported back to Tokyo that AF was short of water. Well, there it is. There's the smoking
0: gun. That clever bit of disinformation confirmed that Midway was the target. We knew what the enemy was doing, and we laid a trap for them. And on the morning of June the 4th, 1942, the Japanese walked right into that trap.
3: So this was the setup for the battle. The Japanese had superior force, but the Americans had advanced knowledge, and that proved to be absolutely decisive. So in the carrier engagement that took place on June 4th, 1942, the Americans in effect ambushed the Japanese carriers while they were focused on Midway and their plan to first wreck it with an air attack and then land forces there and occupy it. While they were engaged in thinking about that, the American carriers launched an attack that proved decisive, sinking three of the four Japanese carriers that morning and attacking and sinking the fourth that afternoon. So it was a clean sweep, the utter destruction of an enemy battleship fleet. And that's extraordinarily rare in the annals of naval history. So this is a decisive tactical engagement in which the Americans, armed with advanced knowledge, were able to destroy the attacking Japanese
0: fleet. Be it Europe or the Pacific, the scale of disinformation used during the war was as vast as it was brilliant and, as Meredith Wilson reminds us, perhaps impossible to duplicate today.
1: I think what always captures my imagination with this story is just how elaborate it was. And also that we couldn't, we we literally couldn't pull it off today because we have cameras everywhere, because we're hyper-connected on the internet. But back then, it you know, it was almost like Hollywood. Um, they they filmed some fake explosions some you know then also planted all of this disinformation which they could only do because they had actually broken the German codes that they were using to communicate so they could actually they actually knew if the disinformation was making it to the to the Germans Paul
0: Reid mentioned earlier how disinformation helped shorten the war and save lives. Wilson makes this point about wars in the 21st century
1: when you compare that, to the Vietnam War when you compare that to Afghanistan when you compare that to today's wars that was a short war by comparison right I mean it was an all-in everybody involved kind of kind of uh, kind of effort but it was short compared to what we have today and there may be some some truth to the fact that the the fact that we cannot conceal information from our enemies or uh, you know from from other states in the way that we used to be able to do, could be part of the reason that these drag on there are other reasons Um, our um, reticence to get fully involved in these wars and so kind of a one foot in one foot out the door kind of thing um, which is something we're kind of looking at at ukraine right now but i don't know if we would have won the war otherwise because it probably would have turned into a war of attrition and it would have turned into a who wants this more kind of situation
0: in our next episode That disinformation is absolutely
2: central to Soviet strategy for defeating what they call the main enemy, what the KGB calls the main enemy, that is the United States, without firing a shot.
0: World War II comes to an end, but a new war is just beginning, a Cold War. Thanks to Meredith Wilson, Paul Reed, Craig Simons, and Ernest Tavares for their contributions to this episode and to the National Archives. Our sound designer, editor, and engineer, Noah Fouts, executive producers, Michael Aloya, and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandes. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.